0: The Acme Lowdown, a podcast series where we get the lowdown on the creative happenings here at Acme. Hi, I'm Shelley Machulik, content producer here at Acme. I have the great pleasure of speaking with archivist and documentary filmmaker Jason Scott. If you haven't visited the Internet Archive, check it out and spend a few months there, www.archive.org. It's just an incredible resource. Here's a little sample. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it, just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time. The atomic bomb flash could burn you worse than a terrible sunburn, especially where you're not covered. Now, you and I don't have shells to crawl into like Bert the turtle, so we have to cover up in our own way. you Your mission. Universal access to all knowledge. I love that. What does that mean in reality? So universal access to all knowledge came because Brewster Kale, who uh, had gotten kind of well off and had considered doing a second act of his life in his 30s after making a good amount of money doing information retrieval, um, kind of walked along in his life figuring out, what do I do next with my money? And I've said before, you know, he could have purchased an island with endangered species and had them fight to the death and he could have had a helicopter made out of caviar that like dipped him in balsamic vinaigrette and instead he said when I was young I heard about the library of Alexandria and I heard it burned and um, I always was sad and I thought that we should have that again maybe I could do that and so he started doing kind of a hot box experiment in a relatively small area in San Francisco and named it the Internet Archive. And he didn't have access to a library and he didn't have access to a media library especially, but he did have access to all of the scraped websites that his firm that he had sold did. So he built the beginnings of how he would do this library based off of that scraped data along with some contractual limitations and everything else. And I think watching how he's done it, he built the library of web pages first And that's kind of what's gotten us our fame and gotten us knowledge. And there are so many people who know what the Wayback Machine is, but they have no idea about anything else about it. Some people think it's a government institution. Some people think that it's an official internet property or something, like as if it's part of the internet, like DNS or or Telnet or um, FTP sites. And then it just ended up being the internet's backup for all these 20 years. Meanwhile, Brewster wanted to leverage digital technology to do a bunch of things that nobody was doing. Um, And one of them was books. And so he started down books. And each time you look at something he's moved into, he either bumped into or became friends with a collector who was passionate about that thing, and they imbued onto him the importance of that medium. So he met Rick Prellinger, That really affected adding movies. He met the Grateful Dead tapers. That affected doing music and recordings. Um, he's become friends with Bob George, who ran the preservation of records and audio and has this audio archive. He now works with us. And he had met somebody else, Simon Carlos, actually, who got him interested in software. And Simon's first attempt at software was simple, but then he met me, and mine has not been as simple, but it's the same idea. So we've had this expansion, and one of the built-in aspects is to make it available to as wide an audience as possible all the time. The little quirk of that is that as a result, everything at the archive is focused on immediate, instantaneous access to everything. And what what I mean by that is we have books, and a lot of places have books. Like you'll go into a directory and here's 400 PDF files, or come here and we'll let you download a PDF. But we're built so that you can instantly read the book in the browser. And maybe you can download it in a bunch of formats. And that ethic is just kind of baked into everything. Instantaneous playing of music. Instantaneous viewing of movies. And I pushed it into this weird thing of instantaneous playing of computer stuff. But it's all this idea that people don't recognize the value of items unless they see them. If A lot of museums will have... 400,000, you know, lithiographs sitting in their specialized um, temperature-controlled room 30 miles from the main building because they leased a building 50 years ago and they've retrofitted it. But then they won't let anybody have access to it. And instead, small roving bands of politically active uh, curators will fight over access to the Miller Room from 2018 to 2020 for a showing of this formal lithiograph. And 45 meetings later, they will choose the 150 most representative lithographs of the last 50 years to represent this. And Brewster's instead like, just give them access to all 400,000 lithographs. And in fact, we will fall down on curation. We actually don't do it very well because that's a human problem. And that's not our focus. That is a very specific, um, let's not call it a defect, but let's certainly call it a a vaguely intentional blind spot that we think it's more important for everybody to have access to everything and derive value from it than to sweatbox and hire people to derive value for it. So you just vacuum everything up. Yeah. What are some of the unique things that you've got? What are are some of the things that you've got that no one else has got? Um, I think, so a lot of things we'll have that others have, and certainly amateurs have, uh, but like stuff like manuals, which I've been pushing for for years. We, We have tens of thousands of manuals. So people can either look up manuals, use them as art, or otherwise acquire them. And, and manuals are interesting because they are vectors of um, innovation and graphic design and priority and industry. They're where you have to describe what a TV is and you have to describe what the TV does and what it's about and everything. And there are much easier to get manuals now in terms of they tend to be PDFs but then if you even go back pre-95 it becomes more and more difficult and if it's sexy in some way video games uh particularly odd machines you can find them because someone digitized them but it becomes harder and harder to find like every radio or every uh, car or every gun or every you know uh, piece of industrial equipment Um, and so We have tons of manuals. We have a manual section. Another thing we'll have is um, um, ephemera that is in like a very, like rave flyers or um, pamphlets for forestry or parks. I want to make a more radical move into that as part of when I finally, assuming that I finally achieve building an apparatus of amateur... Scanners who feel that they have the power. This is a program. I wanted to do for years people We sell thousands and thousands of scanners and they do a reasonably good job even non-destructively But a person will not scan a thing because either a they assume it must have been scanned which it is not B they don't think they'll do it right and c) they don't know where it would go and I want to fix those problems and if i did that i would say there's a bunch of older documents of like come visit the you know the miller caverns and you can go there and here's a whole description of what the miller caverns thought they were in 1975 and that's sitting in someone's house we still have that we still have a lot of caches of material that nobody recognizes the value of i'd like to see more of that so do you yeah. envisage how people will use it in the future to some extent i mean I have been interested to see what happens. Like, I'm, I'm wondering. Who, like, I don't like the approach of not doing anything unless you can produce a use case for it, which just falls into the other. Uh, approaches of the archive like we don't look at each album and go does this have cultural significance we just go does it does does the iso rip yes okay put it up um does it have you know a way to trace it back to russian history i don't know but i'll put up i've just put up or helped put up a few thousand Russian magazines. I don't know any of their cultural significance at all. Um, one of them turns out to be rather rather important. It's like the car magazine that's been around since the 20s. Um, but but um, we don't have a meeting to decide. And I will stumble on collections in the archive where I'm like, I can't believe somebody has 1,400 men's vintage magazines from the 60s. Or, here's a bunch of um, science fiction programs. Um, I'm sitting on a pile of every conference proceeding, or most conference proceedings, for programming conferences of the 80s. It was given to me by one of the co-founders of the GNU Foundation, simply because he had Collected it because he would go to each one because at that point the, the free software foundation is trying to convince people that open software is a good idea So he went to everyone. So he got all of their proceedings. They're just sitting around. I'm going to scan them in. I Don't know what purpose they're gonna have um, So now a lot of it is speculative but the cost is so low like to bring this stuff online and to make a robot look at it and deep learning is happening now that's the new thing we keep talking about deep learning is happening how would you ideally love to see people use this resource so there are pieces of fiction and self-contained creative works that I think have are evergreen. They have never lost their veracity. There is tales of seafaring sh- of in the 1880s. There are radio dramas. There are weird books. Um, like just the other day, the Public Domain Review, which I'd never paid much attention to, did a story on a book that happens to be at the archive. And in fact, they use an embedded form of the archive's book reader to do a... Um, Um, uh, a viewing of it so it's like they talk about the book and then they have the book right there and the book was done by a soldier who was he got into an illegal duel and he was put under house arrest for 47 days so he couldn't leave his barracks for 47 days so he wrote a book and the book is a travelogue of his 47 days in his room so his room he describes it as if he is going on a foreign vacation and he talks about the light going over an armrest as he looks over at his armoire and you know the view that like is afforded you from the bed so he wrote this and then somebody published it the weird vanity project that I guarantee would have just slipped between the couch cushions of time but because it's just there Somebody wrote about it. I read about it. A few other people have mentioned it. Maybe it'll only be a few dozen people. But, like, that little rich interaction is just happening in the background by the tens of thousands, possibly the millions in the archive. Certainly, every year, people are encountering artwork or research. Now, there's an entire other level of high quality curated educational or research that we are may we may or may not be good at like we uh, you know um, somebody is like I'm going to tell the story of mm, you know Vermont software companies and for that vector I don't know what they're going to do like and I think it's funny actually because slightly modern and I'm talking people Whose graduation dates are still in the future, or whose graduation dates are within the last five or 10 years. They're used to kind of a world in the same way that we're used to indoor plumbing. They're used to information being searchable. And they're very disappointed and they're concerned in the same way as, like, a person who first encounters a squat toilet might be completely confused by it's not in a search engine and they might have to do the assemblage. That's the kind of things you look at a slightly cranky librarian or researcher and who's in her 60s and 70s who remembers those 18 months she spent assembling every you know, classical music program of the San Fernando Valley to be able to tell you who the dominant musical forces were, which is now possibly just a query in LexisNexis. Um, they're like, yeah, that's what you do. You do all that, and then you're able to say unequivocally in your book. But there's a certain belief now that well, it's all there, and if it's not there, it's not valid. That's that's a concerning thing. So the archive will produce for you 400,000 items, but we're having um, we're not really spending much time concocting the way the robot will, or you will know, like, please tell me every book with a female protagonist. Please tell me every book that, that ever went through Random House in the 70s. Uh, please tell me, you know, uh, uh, every time a music uh, used this studio musician. We don't have that for them. We're just gonna to try to produce every piece of music and we're gonna to try to recover every book and every piece of manual or technical documentation. But my hope is that those folks will settle down and figure out we have it. Like it will. Like we just added full text search. We didn't have that. We had that as of we did a soft release in October 1st, 2016. So that's 20 years of not having it. But now, if you have a word, you can find all the mentions of that word in all of our OCR text, which includes everything that has text in it, not just books, not just everything in, in, in um, WorldCat. So that's a major jump. There's one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a US Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. And at the archive, a lot of what we see are people going, wow, old things are neat. There's a stone tablet. And the stone tablet, and I forget where this is. I felt like I've seen it somewhere. It was a stone tablet that was a receipt for some grain that somebody owed somebody. And somebody went off on the story of that. That's way better because the stone tablet is interesting. And you're like, oh, look at that. Oh, that's pretty funny. Somebody owes somebody some grain. Apparently, the guy was this jerk. And the stone tablets, many of which he kept, are angry letters to him because he has screwed over so many people in his dealings for so many decades. He In real estate, in fruit, in loans, he's just this, Like, one of the two brothers who found, two friends who founded Canon Pictures, it said he was the king of the broken promise and the untaken dinner check. Like, that's one of his legends. And I think this guy, thousand years later, we have this whole hilarious story of like, oh, human beings are like this. It's not a new thing, it's like this. And I think that there's like all of this value buried in this material and, Anything I can do to make it easier for people to access it, acquire it, and anything where people can also feed in to say, yes, but someone better write this down or somebody better add this part because even though it's not there, it's important. Um, I would definitely call myself one of the pieces, but I I definitely am more towards the showman, the public relations, the explanations, you know, and and I, I think there's been some friction over the years with me specifically, with people who are like, he's not a professional archivist. And I'm like, no, I really am not, but I seem to describe you better than you do, so I'll do that. I happen to like doing that. But it does mean that my attention can be scattered among a whole bunch of um, data points that aren't necessarily, like I'm not like, you know, Sumerian tablets. I am like, oh my goodness, somebody, I found a 100 podcasts somebody put up. Oh my goodness, I found a 1,000 folders. I found a 1,000 whatever. It's like I will, I find it all fascinating. I find the human condition fascinating. The little things we do to each other and tell each other to convince ourselves that we're all just not, you know, rising up out of darkness and falling back into darkness. I think they're all amazing. I think wherever we do, we will continue to do that for all of time and it will provide great and fun amusement and, and education and learning for all of time. Where's your happy place in the archive? Where do you, where do you, um, where's your favorite, favorite place to be and explore? I really like the computer industry of the 1970s and 1980s because that's just about the time that this world-changing technology, you know, this unequivocally, I mean, nobody can sit around and not say the computers have just utterly redefined humanity's interaction with the world. Um, It's a time when it's slipping away from being a pure industrial military Uh, medium and faculty, there's people before, but there's always going to be people before in everything. But this is the first time they're literally like the same store that sells radios and the same store that sells phonographs may also be selling something related to computers, like more and more, more and more through the 70s and then absolutely in the 80s. And it's just here's this technology and it has been packaged to attract anybody. Somebody who didn't think about computers, math, engineering, or anything 20 minutes ago is gonna walk into this store and go like, oh, wow, I want this, and walk away with it. There is an art to it. There is a writing to it. There are these beautiful creations from people who don't have any background. They've not been um, educated or um, um, indoctrinated into any mode of thinking and they're just making software and they're just writing things and then they're using computers in weird ways and they're saying, what are these four extra unused ports or parts or anything? What, what does this do? And what happens if I solder to it? What happens if I short circuit? And I love everything that comes out of there as a result because it's just this weird, like they're treating it like a calculator that never gets uh, old they're treating it like a world-saving electronic brain that's never going to stop thinking of things we're not even like it's just this great moment in time it's not the most powerful moment you know right now is a very powerful moment but it's just fantastic you know like it's so strongly beautiful and so I always go back to those um, as we find more and more and more it's still happening we're still finding newsletters are my favorite we're still finding packaging we're still finding programs of that period like 1975 to 1985 that are just amazing like somebody was like I'm going to make some you know flower growing program that you have to load from a um, cassette and their artwork for it was weird and the description is so odd and they only sold like 80 copies and somebody has a stack of old cassettes and we have it like that's happening all the time. Or newsletters that are being done by mimeograph that are going out to like a hundred people that somebody did because they felt that nobody in the, this obscure state, in this obscure town had any um, um, easy house organ to get to them. That's by far my favorite. I mean, just it was just something about it, it's magical. Uh, onto the thorny, thornier questions. Um, sure. My favorite, the thornier. So, how do you ne- navigate fees? So, there is a very specific thing, but this is all American, so I don't know where. Like, so copyright used to be limited. It's not. There are people who say it is, but it's not. Ninety years past the death of the creator is forever. Like, if try to go back ninety years plus. 70 years in human history and tell me you couldn't plan a building you couldn't plan a bridge to live that long and we've now said that there is a magazine with about two bumblebees that was done in 1965 that is now worthy of perpetuating as an owned property for that amount of time It's insanity. Um, And we used to be limited in terms of it was like anywhere from 15 years to like 20 years. And then you had to do a thing and you could extend it. And that was pretty sensical. Like 20 years came along, you produce 100 magazines. Turns out nobody cares about 80 of them. The 20 of them still get sold. So the company just has a file folder. There's a simple lawyer somewhere. And when the time comes up during the year, they file the paper, cost them 20 bucks. They stay around for another 20 years, make another few million, or another 100,000, or 12,000. And what we did was we turned it automatic, which to this day, I mean, that's one of those nightmares that you look at. It just tells you that human beings are capable of insane laws. Um, To turn every work of human creation into an automatically copyrighted item means nothing's copyrighted, as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't have any meaning. It'd be like everybody who gets born is now a soldier automatically. They're a conscripted part of the army with no evaluation, no medical, no training. You're just a soldier now. You're considered to be a soldier. It would be like there'd be no meaning. That's why we have, that's why soldiers have honor. That's why we have soldiers have, have, have um, you know, uh, monuments to them because they got involved, they were trained, they did a thing, they did whatever. So to say that any creation by anyone, any drawn, uttered, devised human effort, is automatically a copyright it means it's meaningless. So all right, good. We've already screwed that up unequivocally for all of time. You can't you don't even have to file. Then we have seen this new terror where things are like other things and people claim they own the copyright on it cuz it's like their thing. So they're like we kind of own the trademark, like when when Microsoft trademarked Windows, which is still insane, and we let them kind of have it. They trademarked Word. They trademarked... Um, and I realize tra- trademark and copyright are, con- are not to be conflated, but that approach, that intellectual property, is ubiquitous, forever, arbitrarily indicated, because again, um, 50,000 of something is created by 30,000 people. And four of them get sold to a major conglomerate whose purpose is to perpetuate and keep those items forever locked up and licensed. And then everybody else, they don't want somebody to make a million dollars off it. And I totally get that. They don't want somebody to include their song track on a mixtape or a um, compilation that then sells for twelve dollars, and thirty thousand dollars is made of it, and they don't get any money. I totally get those contingencies, but there's all these other use cases for like borrowing them, referencing them, utilizing them as a beginning, um, speaking pieces from them that are now an endless dark gray morass of everything is fine unless we sue you for a million dollars and if you do that to human beings they will just like if you just have cops who randomly shoot people in the face now there's a tipping point and I mean we've seen this you can shoot people in the face you can have a place like Chicago where just there's a lot of corruption and things are going on but they learn very quickly that there's a noise floor of like eh, 40 50 people die a year randomly in a cell because they happen to get picked up that's fine but if it starts to become too much now it gains attention and with copyright we're seeing everything's kind of fine and people are kind of doing stuff And then, every once in a while, somebody gets sued for a million dollars and it destroys their life, utterly destroys it for all of time. And we're like, eh, price of doing business. (laughs) So we're kind of like in the, and it sounds crazy, but it's like, yeah, it's just, it's like, it's like, it's like wartime. It's just every once in a while, people wake up and their lives are destroyed. Everybody, every other floor, same thing. You know, it's like, it's like um, I've always described it as the similar situation we have, the speeding tickets. We pull over one guy, hit him up for $200, $300. Everybody else was going the same route. And there's a law There's, there's actually been legal precedent for like, yeah, the, the cops. It's not a legal defense to go, everybody was doing it. We have, have precedents for that. We also have precedents for he chose me out of five people who were obviously doing it right there it also says, nope, that's the cop's discretion. And the idea here is that enforcement can be arbitrary and random. I don't think any of this is healthy for humankind or creation. Um, And yet there is just so much money to be made in doing it. So I have no faith that we will get better at it. I only have faith that there will come to be a a stasis of it's not worth it to enforce unless you know a person has a specific um, thing they're focused at like their specific property that is being you know like right now you can send letters I, I live, I consider this, like I said, I, I consider it a very dark period, and what's going on is apparatus that has been around has slowly grown for 100 years around the realm of intellectual property, was faced with a new technology. So they did everything they could against it. They tried to limit it. They tried to make part of it legal. They tried to force a license. There was a time when they were trying to get a license for um, computers. There was a time when they were, like, that was a very specific thing. They wanted to have it that you had to get a license to have, own a computer. Um, they wanted to get a license against certain kinds of technology. Um, they've crippled the technology. They've modified um, pathways and industry to make it, you know, like, these are all, this is all, like, the, the throes of a c- company tr- saying, wait, we need more time. Now we spend $10 a month and we can get all the music we want. Somebody's getting rich off that. And I think a lot of what we experienced was a vamp waiting for that, for that moment, to turn it all back into the same distribution networks, except with slightly different and stupider names, you know, stupid hybrid 1990s made up names. So this all the question you're not asking which this all comes back is like so where does a library feel in here my feeling is that they all that if given a choice uh the content creator the content sorry not the creators the content management companies would just rather libraries and museums die or become glorified theaters and bookstores if given a choice or stick to tortoises paintings from 400 years ago or statues that they can't monetize. Um, and I think that, that libraries and museums are under a strong incentive to either put a line in the sand and decide that they are a thing different than a than a museum or a bookstore or they will become that they will become Pepsi presents history and it will be very dull and very controlled and very uninteresting. It'll be perhaps graphically interesting. It'll certainly be like a commercial is interesting, but it will not be based on anything. And anything unpleasant will be, I mean, we know that happens anyway, but I mean, it'll happen even more of like, oh, this is a little inconvenient. Our our retrospective of this guy. There is a room in the Museum of Science in Boston. I love this room. Every time I see it, I love it. It's way in the basement. It's so far out of the way. It's like near the bathrooms. It's got a little velvet rope you can't go in. It's a recreation of the room of one of the founders, I think it was Mugar, of the Boston Museum of Science, and all it is is animal heads. It's just elephants, tigers, it's got an a, 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 um, elephant foot waste basket. It's got all these things, and it's just, oh, here's a recreation of whatever, and it was just created. It's so out of time, but I think like contractually they can't get rid of it. They're stuck with it. It's their history. And it's inconvenient, and it's weird, but it's also very real. And I think it would be very fun if somebody like, took that and said, let's think about this. What, what was the context of all that? Let's build something cool from it. And I think that there will be great pressure in the future to hide, such, to hide anything inconvenient in um, stuff, if they let corporate interests, um, the corporate interest is like, you will never have to worry about running out of money. But you can't put this up anymore, you know? Um, I'm told of the story of a museum who were given a bunch of source code that came from Microsoft. And in the code, it unequivocally shows where Microsoft stole things. Microsoft is a very big contributor to that museum. And said, "We'd like our property back," and they gave it to them. <laughs> it's very inconvenient. It's somewhere in the Microsoft archives. It's going to probably sit there for a long time, but eventually it might come out. But it's very inconvenient right now. Right now, it's Bill Gates working hard in his office, and oh, IBM. He made that. He made the plane trip that Gary Kildall wouldn't, and therefore Microsoft does. So I mean, that that's. Um, that's what I mean, that's what I, and it's, so, I mean, a lot of what I say probably sounds melodramatic, but I mean, that's, that's where I come from with it. And, and I, I, I hear of other companies that are like, oh, to stay in sync, we have to add that ridiculous perpetual copyright. We need to do it. And um, the new thing where we're going to allow automatic, like basically, you know, program-based judge dreads that go on to anything uploaded and say, this matches a thing that people own therefore it must go down Um, I watch it happen all the time Um, they already do it with um, uploaded items at YouTube it'll tell you who owns it and tell you what they did it's over and if any of those pattern matches are wrong there's very little um, chance to, to protest or, and it becomes extremely time consuming. That's, the, you know, anyway, that's the world we, we, we are dangerously coming close to living in. Jason Scott, you've got a beautiful mind. Thank you for allowing us to capture it and we'll keep it in our archive forever. Absolutely, <laughs> you may use it freely in any way you wish. Been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com/slash acme online or the Acme website.